Again, if you're unfamiliar or trying to get a picture of what is um, this gospel of Mark and what is it all about, it's really simple. You read verse 1 and you really quickly grab exactly what Mark's his goal is in writing this wonderful gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Mark says, it very plainly says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This gospel is a gospel about Jesus. Jesus is the good news. He is the one that he's writing, and it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We already get his name, Jesus Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. But also, he's the Son of God. And so, he is writing this book to help us see who is Jesus. What is this person? What is he? Is he a prophet? Is he a really good teacher? Is he a loving person? Is he compassionate? Is he gracious? Is he kind? Is he a contribute? Does he bring good contribution to society? Who is this Jesus? And Mark is explaining us. Uh, if you are a little bit familiar with the New Testament, we know that the first four books of the New Testament, beginning with Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all gospels. Uh, they are historical narrative about Jesus. Uh, they were from people or people who gave eyewitness to, which is in case of Luke. Luke, as he's writing, he's writing from perspective of gaining all the eyewitness accounts. And he's telling us about this Jesus. Who is he? Mark was also another one of the disciples who was later on. Um, and he is writing from probably most, most agree that it's probably from the perspective of Peter. Peter, one of the twelve that we're going to look at again here in a few minutes this morning. But each of these are writing to tell us, who is Jesus? So listen, for one, if you are searching, if you're critical and you're wondering, like, is this even real? Like, is this whole following Jesus a real thing? Is it something that I should do or not? All I would encourage you to do is read the Gospels. Read Mark. Mark's the shortest, so that naturally for most we can get through it. It's, not, it's, the, it's the shortest. It's kind of the briefest. It, um, Mark is quick on his details. He doesn't give a lot of details. He hits it pretty to the ground running and getting us to the last week of his life. The majority of his book is actually going to be the last week of Jesus' life. And he is approaching that, and we're at a transition point as we pick up this morning in Mark chapter 3, verse 7. And as we open up this, before I read it, we read it together. I'm just going to read it out loud. You have to read uh, out loud as well. But as we read this passage, we see a transition statement. Uh, in in the first few, this first little section, we're going to see a brief summary. He's summarizing a, really a lot of what's already happened in the first couple or first three chapters. Or the first two and a half, three chapters. And as we've seen and as we looked at over the past several weeks, there's these controversies. And over and over again, there's these different controversies that Jesus is dealing with. For instance, here comes this man. He's, he's coming and it's on the Sabbath. And is he going to heal this man or not? That's what we looked at last week. And Jesus is like, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, a strong statement about who he is. Like, the Sabbath wasn't, uh, isn't, like, man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, and it was a gift to man. He gives it, and he's, but he's saying, I'm Lord of it. I am Sabbath rest. So the Old Testament, it had the Sabbath that they would observe on Saturdays, and they would keep that day as holy unto the Lord. They wouldn't do any work. They would do nothing. They would start the night before preparing for the day of Sabbath rest. 
And Jesus comes on the scene and he's picking some grain. And the Pharisees are like, they're eating grain. They picked from the field. They've broken the Sabbath. Well, actually, they had not broken the Sabbath law. But they accused him of breaking the Sabbath law by by him plucking from the grain on the field. They considered that work, the Pharisees did. And that working on the Sabbath was prohibited. And so they called him out on it. And that's when Jesus makes the statement, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And then right before we get to our passage this morning, there's another story. They, they come to, a man comes to him with a, a withered hand, maybe a paralyzed hand, a broken arm. I don't know. We don't know the details of what this withered that we have translated for us in the SV is. But this hand that probably is, doesn't work anymore. It's probably paralyzed. And he's going to come. And what are, the, what are the Pharisees doing? They're watching him and they're waiting. What's he going to do on this Sabbath day? What does he do? He tells the man, stretch out your hand and be healed. He heals this man. This man's hand all of a sudden works. And the Pharisees, this is the turning point, was last week, the last verse. I want you to look at it with me. Chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. See, this Jesus we were just singing about, these Pharisees are saying, we're out to destroy him. The the turning point in this gospel begins here. The Pharisees now are actively, and the religious rulers and leaders of the day for the Jews are working now even with the Herodians. And again, who is the Herodians? It's a group of Jewish people who who were in agreement with Herod, the, 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 the leader and the king of Rome. And so they were, they were for the Roman government even over the Jews. They were the Herodians. And now they're going to plot and try to find a way to get Jesus out of their way. They're going to crucify them if you know how the story continues. This is their goal. And so as Mark is telling us this, his transition statement leading us in verse 7. I want us to read it together. He says in verse 7 of chapter 3, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. This means they're coming from north, south, and east. The Mediterranean seas, they're not really coming from the west. But they're coming from all around. I mean, some as far as hundreds and over a hundred miles to see this Jesus. The great, it says a great crowd followed him. We're going to see what this great crowd does. It says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had had healed many. I mean, think about this, verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. Like, think of this, you know, like, have you ever seen celebrities? Right? And like how celebrities, it's like they've got the car, like, it's like have the ignition going on the car ready because the crowd is overwhelming. Uh, I don't know if any of you are uh, like a superstar or something. I don't know it yet or something. But if you've ever, like, you see the paparazzi and the people that follow celebrities, it is overwhelming. But can you imagine? People are coming from hundreds of miles on foot and on their camels and on their donkeys. And they're coming because they know, they've heard, word is spread like wildfire that there is this man who can heal your diseases. I've heard of places like in India and others, in northern India, 
around train stations and others where people have traveled into that area and getting into, even into the Himalayas areas, and then describing all the sick, all clamoring around these stations, and they're there just hoping to get someone to help them, someone to meet a need for that day, give them some food and things like that. If you've been in downtown Atlanta in some of the areas with homelessness, you might see some of this. But can you imagine, though, these things? And I remember one pastor telling a story uh, about that where he got off the train station. Here's this man who, who barely could move. He's like, he had no legs that worked. His one arm looked like a club arm, basically. He had one arm, and he just grabbed his pants was holding on to him and, and speaking in his own language that he didn't understand, basically asking him for help. I mean, he's desperate. Can you imagine the sick are all hearing, there's hope? This, this Jesus of Nazareth can heal people? And so the crowds are so great and it's overwhelming. It's like a swarm of a crowd and they're just pushing and pushing and pushing. And Jesus is like, this is getting, I mean, really, it almost is becoming too much. It's like, Guys, hire a boat. Get a boat ready. I'm going to need to maybe get on this boat and then communicate to the crowds. It's becoming overwhelming. And so whenever it tells us, have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. We get a story of that in another one of the Gospels where even a lady who had an infirmity in the middle of a crowd grabs the hem of his robe and is healed. And so people are just clamoring and they're reaching their hands and trying to touch him and get healing and be healed of these diseases. And here this crowd is overwhelming him. And he's giving us a picture of what's been happening. We've been seeing these healings already happening and these, these casting out of demons as well and people who were demon-possessed. And so it tells us in verse 11, and when, whenever the unclean spirits saw him. Now remember this, the spirit isn't just hovering around. These spirits have taken over a human being. So this spirit has taken over a human being, and these human beings are coming up to him, but they're being controlled by this demonic forces and the, the demons of this world. And it says whenever the unclean spirits saw him, what'd they do? They, they, it's like the bodies of these people fell down in front of Jesus' presence and cried out, you are the son of God. You see, they knew who Jesus was. And they respond with the statement of, you're the son of God. And verse 12 tells us, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. It's interesting why he would say that. We're going to answer that question in a little bit. And then continuing on in verse 13, and he went up on the mountain. So it's like he's been by the sea, overwhelmed by the crowd. All right, it's time for a break. Go up onto the mountaintop. So he goes up to the mountain and called to him. Listen to the words here. He calls to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, meaning sent ones. They're the sent ones. These apostles that he appointed so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Pretty 
overwhelming statements. A lot happens just in these few verses this morning. And really what I, all I want to do this morning is look at four different responses to Jesus. You see, there's, there's this answer that Mark is trying to help us with as we walk through this whole book is, who is Jesus? Like, who is he really? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity was famous for mentioning basically the, 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 he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's actually Lord. Which is he? He's one of the three. Is he, a, is he a liar? Like, does he come and he just makes these claims about himself that aren't true? When he says, I have the authority to forgive sins, is that true or not true about Jesus? When he says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, is that true or not? Or is, is he a liar? Is he a lunatic, which is what we're going to see next week, is his own family is like he's, he's mad, he's lost his mind. That's how his own family is going to describe him next week. We'll look at that. Or is he actually Lord? And what we see are there's important, these four responses, but there's really only one response, and the response is, happens when someone is called by God. We see this with the disciples. But first, I want us to notice the first response, and this has really happened already before our, even our passage is this. And the first is this, is they deny the identity of Jesus. One response to Jesus is to deny his identity. I'm sure you can kind of already guess who the, that crowd is. It's the Pharisees. It's the Sadducees. It's the religious leaders of the day. The Jews who saw him and they're like, no, you are not the Messiah. You are not the promised one. You're, you, you can't be God. That's why when he, when he made this statement, we looked at this earlier, when he said, the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. When he chooses to forgive the man's sin, who is, remember, he's lowered down through the roof. The friends cut a hole, they unroof the roof, they make a hole in the roof, they lower him down, their friend. He, the first thing that Jesus tells that man is not you're healed of your disease. He says your sins are forgiven. And he said, to show you that I have, he tells the Pharisees in that passage, to show you that I have the authority to forgive sins, he says, arise, stand up, walk, you're, you're also healed. He heals him and he forgives his sins, showing his authority. And so much so, it's a claim of deity that he's making that what happened? The religious leaders begin the plot, as we saw just a, ver a few verses ago in verse 6. They begin to plot to murder him, to kill him. Because they're saying, no, 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 that's blasphemy. Only God is God. You as a man can't be God. So they are denying who Jesus is. They're denying the identity of Jesus. This is the Pharisees and religious rulers. That's what we've seen really all the way up until this passage. But notice the other group of people and the other response. This is what I would say and argue is most people even to this day. But it was most people up until uh, all, of, all the way up until the last week of Jesus' life was they were attracted to Jesus. This is the second response. People are attracted to Jesus. We see this. Look back at our passage. It says, when Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him. From Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. I mean, they're coming from everywhere because they're attracted to Jesus. They're like, there's something about this guy. He can heal. And so they're attracted but there's a problem with this attraction. Their attraction is not because he is the son of God. It's that he can heal their diseases. They're attracted to his miracles, his signs, his wonders, his power, his ability to heal their diseases. You see, they're attracted to Jesus because of what he can do. He's a miracle worker. He's a healer of diseases. 
tells us as it continues, it says, When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had, what? Healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. You see, another response to Jesus is that you're attracted to him. And so you're attracted to him maybe for all of the wrong reasons. Not because of who he is, but because of what he can do for you. I believe there's a difference. You see, in Romans, it tells us that we shift it. And this is what we do so often, all of us probably to some degree. We worship the created things rather than the creator. We worship what the creator could give us, not the actual creator. We worship the things of God and the things that he can do, and we like the things that he can do. I mean, there's a lot that he can do. He's the conquering king. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, yes, but he can heal diseases. He has authority over these things. He has, he's wonderfully kind. He's compassionate. He is compassionate that he's not just saying, no, you can't approach me. No, he's approachable. People come and they clamor over him, and he receives them, and he shows grace to them, and he shows his healing powers to them. It's, you see the compassion of Jesus in these verses, in this story. But that's not the main reason to follow him. You see the crowds, they're adoring him. We'll see this again all the way up to the last week of his life. He can't even enter a town without quickly the crowd gathering. We looked at this. If you, get, if you can turn your Bible, you can turn, just turn back a couple pages or a couple verses um, if we look back at chapter 1, starting in verse, I think it's verse 35. Um, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Why did he pray? He's out there because he's been healing all these people in verse 34. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak. Again, we're gonna, we see that in our passage today. And what does he say in verse 38? And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. You see, he came not just to heal diseases. Yes, he's, he's a God who is making all things new. He's restoring what was broken in the Garden of Eden, the very first sin that ever occurred. When man and woman, when they rebelled against God and said, I want to be like God, and they chose to go their own path and say, no, I, I question your goodness to me, and I'm going to choose to, do, to eat this fruit because you're holding something back from me. When they did that, that brought sin into our world so that every person who's ever lived has indwelling sin. And this indwelling sin has to be Punished. So Jesus comes, yes, to restore what was broken, but the people don't get it fully. They don't understand. And so they're attracted to what he can offer. I don't know if you were seeing this. It became kind of it became even popular in mainstream media there for a bit. But for about 10 days, there was a um, revival that happened from a chapel service that began at Asbury College um, several, about last month. And it began with just a chapel service, but many people had been praying for revival. And so they'd been praying for this. And all of a sudden, God was moving among those people, those college students, where it was leading them to come forward and repent of their sins, to confess their sins and cry out to God to forgive them and to open their eyes. And it led to this kind of unceasing worship of God that lasted in the next 10 days. 
This worship service it just never ended. And what was happening is all of a sudden, right, it, got, it, it gained some traction. Some pastors got aware of it, made some comments on Twitter and other places. And people are all of a sudden, they want to go see it. And guess what happened? People started coming. The crowds began to come. They wanted to see. Maybe they wanted to experience it truly and experience what was going on there. But see how quickly we can go after an experience? How we can, we can worship worship? How we can glorify worship and we can come after that and not the the one who gets our worship. And so here these crowds are coming. There's, I mean, listen, in Asbury, there's lines of people, all people, not college students, I mean adults, people from all over the U.S. and all over coming to see this. It's kind of what you're seeing here. They're attracted to Jesus. But what we see in John chapter 6, verse 2, is the crowds are gathering because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. The crowds are coming. So much so that they're overwhelmed. And we're going to look at the story later in Mark is the feeding of the 5,000. And as he feeds the 5,000, in John's telling of this story, as John tells it, um, he, he, he describes it in this way. He says that Jesus' response to the crowds after it, because they're like coming back for more. They're like, that was awesome. You just fed 5,000 people with just a little bit of food, this miracle that happened. And it tells us in, in, in John's uh, retelling of the story in chapter 6, verse 26, he says, Jesus' response is, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He said, you're seeking me because of what I can give materially, physically. You see, a lot of people like the idea of a God who's a giver of good gifts. A lot of people are attracted to a Jesus who will meet all your needs and all your wants and make your life a blessing and a happiness and will fill your life with joy and your children will all be great and all wonderful and, and you'll have a job and you'll make a lot of money and you'll get to live a good life and have great experiences in this life and we're attracted to that kind of Jesus. What we see, though, is in that same story in John chapter 6, after Jesus said that I'm the bread of life, not this bread that I can give you, but me, you know what happened? They didn't say, oh, man, Jesus, we love you. I'll follow you wherever you'll go. Mm -mm. It's a long chapter. Towards the very end, it tells us that after that day, Many stopped following him. Because what happens? What happens? Why would people stop following Jesus who's so kind and so gracious and so wonderful and he heals diseases? Because that's all they wanted. They wanted, really it was a self-love. They liked the kind of love that Jesus loves them and that he will give me what I need. You see, this is the attractional crowd. Then we see, even from the demons, I think we can learn something in this passage. In verse 11, we see another response. It's a response that we can see even today as well, but we see it in the demons specifically as a knowledge of Jesus' true identity but an unwillingness to follow Jesus. It's a knowledge of Jesus' true identity that he actually is the Son of God. 
that he really is God in the flesh, that he is holy, and you can know all the things about God and yet not follow him. This is literally the demons. The demons, what do they do? They know who God is. Look at it again. Verse 11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they see Jesus, what do they do? Whoever they have taken over, it forces that person to fall in front of him and they cry out and they say, you're the son of God. You see, they know Jesus' identity, but they're unwilling to follow him. They don't want to surrender to him. You see, that's the problem with the second crowd we were talking about, the attractional crowd. The attractional crowd is unwilling to follow him at any cost. They're only willing to follow him as long as he is benefiting them. Like the people who were fed, the 5,000 who were fed. You see, knowledge of Jesus' true identity, but unwilling to follow him. James 2 verse 19 tells us, you believe that God is one. James is telling his, his, he's James kind of punches you a lot, and so he just keeps punching you over and over again in the, in the book of James towards the end of your Bible. And James is writing, and he's like, you believe that there is one God. And he's like, he's calling these people out. You believe that there is one God. And here's what he says. You do well, but here's what he, he warns you. And he says, even the demons believe and shudder. And we see this every time Jesus is in their presence. They shudder. They're scared. They're nervous because they recognize they have a greater authority. They don't have ultimate authority. So if Jesus casts them out, which he does, and he's going to give his disciples the same ability um, to cast out this authority, to cast out demons, let's let's put it that way better than um, um, ability. An authority to cast out demons that the disciples would have and Jesus had as well. You see, they have this authority because they don't have authority over Jesus. Jesus is the supreme authority. But their response is they know who he is, but they're unwilling. Just like Satan when he was cast out of heaven, right? I mean, he doesn't, is not content being lower than God. He wants to make himself God of his life. And that is most of us. That is most people who walk on this earth. We want to be in control. We want to be God. We would never say it out loud, but with our actions, we play the part of God. When we give in to sin, when you lust, when you covet, when you lie, when you're you're making yourself look good in front of someone else, all these things are putting yourself above God and his authority. And Jesus is saying, even in this passage, as we see this story unfolding, we see his authority over these demons, and these demons recognize who he is. But they're not going to follow him. They're opposed to him. Directly opposed to him. But this does lead us to a question I, wanna, I do want to answer this morning. He says it in verse 11 again. So whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. You see, many people who've, like, this is a topic that we see throughout the, the Gospels is, why does Jesus tell the demons and even people that he healed, like the paralytic we saw earlier in Mark, why does he tell them not to tell anybody? Like it's, and so it's been coined a phrase of the messianic secret and wondering, what is it? Why does he tell the demons, don't tell anybody my, who I really am? I think it is an interesting concept and an interesting study to know why does he actually do that? Why does he want to conceal his identity? Doesn't he want people to know who he really is? 
Like, doesn't he want the, the Pharisees to actually know who he is? You see, it is interesting that he does conceal his identity. We're going to see this in a couple weeks, how he uses the parables as a way to conceal his identity. And we go, like, why does he want to conceal his identity? You see, as he's doing these things in chapter 1, verse 45, look at this in verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it. So this is after he heals uh, and cleanses the leper. It says in verse 45, so chapter 1, verse 45. But when he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places. You see, as word was spreading about who Jesus is, he couldn't even go into a town and openly preach and share the hope of the gospel because they're like, they're, they're overwhelmed with who he is and they want him uh, to heal all of their diseases. We looked at this just a second ago, but in verse 35, again, we see this. His desire was, he's like, everyone's looking for you. But he, what does he want to do? He goes to a solitary place to pray. And then he tells his followers, of, his followers to say, like, listen, I'm ready to go to the next town. Like, I know there's people here that, that want more healings and all these things. But I came to preach. I came to command, as he says in chapter 1, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, uh, I cannot remember who, who coined this, kind of coined this phrase. I don't know if there's a single person who actually coined this phrase, but, but it, it's this. All secrecy is, is not meant to deceive people. Like, just because there's secrecy behind something doesn't mean it's meant to deceive. Uh, Jesus, he has been clear. It wasn't meant to deceive the crowds. He's not trying to deceive them like, hey, I don't want, I don't want you to know who I am. It's basically withholding information about himself because the people aren't ready for who he truly is. Because remember, if you know, you know your Old Testament a little bit, you know the people are looking for a Messiah, but what kind of Messiah were they looking for? They were looking for a ruler. They were looking for someone to overthrow the government who was going to establish a kingdom and it was going to remove Roman rule over them and, and free the Jews to, to back to their own freedom and back to their own uh, land and all these things that they would have freedom to worship. And they were looking for this Messiah, but they missed the suffering servant in, Math, in Isaiah 53. They didn't realize the Messiah actually needed to come and he needed to live this life and take their place on a cruel criminal's cross and die the death that they should have deserved and we should have deserved. You see, they didn't understand these things and they weren't ready for this. And in God's sovereign time, he was withholding these things, kind of keeping it secret, using the parables even to conceal his identity. And only for those who really had ears to hear would understand the parables. Oftentimes, as we'll see, the disciples are going like, what, would you, what did you mean by that parable? The parable of the sower that we're going to look at in two weeks. Like, what did you mean there? They didn't understand it. And so he would explain it to them because they were his followers so they could understand what he was meaning. It was a concealing. It's this messianic secret. But ultimately, he wanted to teach them who the Messiah really was. And that was going to take him all the way to the cross and it, it would have, and in God's sovereign plan, that was the timing. And so the timing wasn't ready. He wanted more people to hear the gospel, to hear the truth. And so if it just gets out there immediately, it overwhelms, and then maybe it speeds up. I don't know. In God's sovereign hand and time, it took place in exactly the right time. And here he's concealing it, and we see it throughout. But ultimately, here's the response of many people. It's this 
it's this, still this third point. Is over and over again, most people, they may even kind of grasp Jesus' true identity, but they're unwilling. It's a lot like the rich young ruler. And my fear is the rich young ruler represents a lot of us people in America who like the idea of Jesus, like the idea of who Jesus actually is, not that he's just going to meet all my needs and make my life better. Like, he really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we like to say, yeah, Jesus, I believe in that. Or I, I put my, I, you know, back in VBS when I was real young at my parents' church or something, I prayed a prayer and I'm good. Or I got baptized in this church. and we, You know, like, or I've always known Jesus. But are they willing to follow him? You see, ultimately, the disciples that we see in this passage are the only ones, and this is the response. The only response to Jesus is disciples, and it's the disciples who respond to the call to follow him. You see, Jesus invites, notice this, this is what we see. Jesus initiates, he pursues. It's not us that pursue God. He first pursues us. We love God. Why? As 1 John tells us. We love God because he first loved us. Look at this. I mean, you see it. You see the sovereignty of God here as well. So in, in verse chapter, chapter 3, the calling of the 12. I'll do this quickly. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. He's calling Levi. I mean, if you've paid attention, pay attention. Pay attention to the calling of the disciples. Is there ever a person when Jesus says, he talks to them and he says, come follow me, that they're like, mm, nah. <laughs> he, the rich young ruler comes to him and asks him, what must I do to be saved? And he explains to him. But he, he comes after the rich young ruler's heart and he says, Listen, I want you to go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And what does he do? He walks away sad. Why? I think it's interesting. He wasn't willing to follow him. But see, when Jesus calls, when Jesus knocks at the door, when he comes after, there is a response. And here's the disciples' response. He calls to whom he desires, and they come and follow him. Levi, we looked at this earlier. Levi, the tax collector. I mean, this is, this is like the, the worst of the worst in, the, in this culture. This is a Jew who said, no, I, uh, I, I'm going to go work for the Roman government. And I'm going to use all, that I, all of my powers, and I'm going to take from, from the weak and the, and the, and the, and the broken. I'm going to take from the fishermen. I'm going to take extra for me. And they would way overprice everything so that they could take whatever they wanted from them. And Jesus approaches him while he's at the tax booth. And what does he say? Levi, come follow me. And what does Levi do? Immediately he left and followed him. When Jesus comes to Peter, what does he do? He leaves his net and he leaves everything and he follows him. When he comes to uh, James and John and others and Andrew, when he comes to Andrew, one of the first to be called, and as he goes from Andrew and goes, tells his own brother about him, and then they go and Jesus, he calls them and they follow him. He initiates. You see, a follower of Jesus is pursued by God. And he tells us here, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And what did they do? They came to him. They followed him. They left everything and followed him. And then it tells us he appointed. 
And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might. And here's what their purpose was. What is their purpose? Why does he invite these 12 to follow him? He invites them to follow him and he tells us these two things. He says, so that they might be with him. That's going to be really important as we go into the church age. Why is that important? Eyewitness accounts. We have the gospel. We're studying it today because these 12 were with him. The reason we know about the resurrection, because these 12 were with him. The reason we know about the feeding of the 5,000, the reason we know about Jesus as the bread of life, the reason we know these things is because Jesus was with them. He didn't just from a distance. He was close with them. There were more other disciples than just the 12. This is kind of an inner circle. And even within the 12 was a three, Peter, James, and John. But he appoints them and he, he says, come be with me. And you see, life is meant to be lived in community. And if you're going to be discipled and you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus, you have to be with him. Like, you can't just, like, and this is what people do. This is what people, oh, so many people, oh, I love Jesus, I'll follow Jesus. But they don't ever, ever, are never with him. This is how we're with him, with him in his word. This is how he speaks to us. We're with him when we pray and we talk to our father. That's how we're with him. Ultimately, he says, I will be with you to the end of the age, the end of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. This promise of his presence, the spirit of God indwelling us. He says, I want to be with you. And he invites them to be with him. And then what are they to do? That they might preach and have authority to cast out demons. You see, Andrew and Thomas and James and John, these sons of thunder that we see. And Peter, this, this picture of a rock. And John, the apostle, and even Judas Iscariot, who it tells us in verse 19, who betrayed him, were with him. And these 12, and then eventually Judas is going to be replaced. And how do we know that they needed to be with him? When they replaced Judas after he um, uh, killed his, took his own life, after betraying Jesus. When they, in Acts Chapter 1, when you see them calling the next apostle, they required that person. They had sought, and, and in their prayer, and as, as they're seeking counsel and asking what should they do, they cast lots because the Spirit of God hasn't indwelled them yet to determine what is God's will for this person. But before they even narrowed when they narrowed it down, these people needed to be with Jesus. These apostles needed to have seen his ministry from the beginning. And so then they call another one in Acts 1. You see, these disciples, they're with him so that they can be eyewitnesses to him, learn from him, because they are going to be this new Israel. Have you ever wondered, why 12? Why not 14? Why not 26? Why not 200? Why not 4? Why not 3? 12. 12 is a very symbolic number. You see, 12 is the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. These were the people of God. They were the, the tribes of Israel. They were the Israel. And here Jesus is coming in and establishing a new, a, a, a greater kingdom, a greater Israel is being established. A new covenant in his name is going to occur through his death on the cross. We're about to observe the Lord's and go to the Lord's table in a second and remember and reflect on what he has done for us. But this new Israel is establishing a new Israel. This 12 are going to be established as, as leading the charge to the church. And how do we have a church in this building today, 2,000 years ago? It's because these 12 were with Jesus. 
And they went and they preached and they preached and they preached. And the gospel spread to India and further. And then it started preaching more. And then persecution in the sovereignty of God. Persecution drove out the Christians, the followers of Jesus, north. And they go into Europe. And the gospel gets to Europe. And and the gospel spreads as Paul is planting church after church after church. And all of a sudden more churches are being planted. And more converts and more followers of Jesus are growing. Till one day some people decided to come over to the U.S. of A. Where we live today. And they shared the gospel. And then there was a great awakening that happened in, um, uh, you know, several, about 200, 300 years ago. And as the gospel kept spreading, it spread. And, and all of a sudden, there's churches for church. And we would look at the world and the U.S. I mean, there's churches everywhere. How is, that, how, how is that possible? It's because Jesus invited a 12 to be with him, to follow him, and to make him known. You see, that's our mission as a church our, church, our our mission as a church is to help people joyfully follow Jesus, be with him, and make him known. See, that is the call of every follower of Jesus. We're to follow him. We're to deny, take up our cross daily, Matthew 16, 24. We're to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. This is the only response. It's the response to the call of Jesus on your life. Here's what we were praying earlier before uh, before this service today. This is how I pray often, is that, God, you would open our blinded eyes to see who you truly are. Help us not to just see you and, and want what you can offer. Help us to be willing to say, God, at whatever cost, I will follow you. If I lose family, if I lose status, if I lose relationships and friendships and some of the things in my past, if those go away, I'm okay with it because as long as I'm following you and I have you, that's all that matters. It's a response. And I ask you, what is your response to who Jesus is? I would probably argue most of you know who Jesus is. But are you following him? Are you a a follower? Are you an active follower of Christ? The The trials and tribulations ahead of each of our lives, this week, months, years, who knows what those will look like? Are we only gonna are we gonna be like many who ate their fill of the loaves and were like, all right, and then when the when the the going got tough? And the hardships, like what all the disciples went through, persecution, most of them executed. Are we willing to follow him? We're going to continue this theme over the next two weeks as we look at this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit next week. And then also as we look at the parable of the sower and these parables in chapter 4. But My prayer for each of us is that we would be a people who respond to his calling and inviting us to follow him. The invitation is open to everyone. But many don't because of the things of this world, the trials. We're going to see this in the parable of the sower in a couple weeks. But my prayer for each of us is that we will genuinely follow Christ, that that would be our response. God, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you send me, I will go. If you want to send me to Africa, I'm willing to go. If you want to send me to China, if you want to send me an hour north of here to help plant a church further up north, God, I will go wherever you want me to go because I want to follow you for all of my days to my last breath. That is what I desire here is that we would be a people in a church that helps people joyfully follow him.
be with Jesus and make him known. Here before we um, go to the table together and um, reflect on what Jesus did for us on this cross. Because the only way to respond is a repentance and faith. Is to repent. I mean, that's what Jesus said when he's inviting. Is It's an invitation to follow him, yes. But it's a repenting. It's a, you see, they, they leave their stuff behind and they follow him. They turn from their lifestyles and, and they follow Jesus. It's a repentance and belief in the gospel. And for those of you that have put your faith and trust in Jesus, the invitation is for each of us to remember what Christ has done for us at Calvary. I lost it. I, I don't, y'all may not, because this might be the first time you heard the song this morning, but like I, the, we were singing the Lamb of God. It's one of my, probably one of my favorite songs because it is, reflects my heart of the gospel, for, towards the gospel, and Jesus, the Lamb of God, in, listen to these words, the Lamb of God in my place His blood poured out, my sin erased. It was my, I can almost, I can't hardly talk it. I can't, it's so emotional. Like, my my sin erased, my my debt he paid. Like, he paid your debt. The debt for your sin has been paid at Calvary. His blood was poured out so that we could be forgiven. He paid the price. He lived the life that we should have lived, but we were incapable of living because we're sinful people. And because of our sin, it deserves a response of of eternal punishment. And I know that might seem harsh to us, but that means we just don't understand the holiness of God and we think ourselves too highly, probably self-righteous, thinking we're pretty good. But that sin debt was too great for us to bear, so Jesus came. This Lamb of God, He comes and He lives and He forgives sins. He heals diseases, all these things, but it's all leading Him to the cross to pay the price. And then the Last Supper, as he is, they have celebrated for centuries, the Jews had, the Passover. They would remind themselves of the Exodus and God's rescue of their nation of Israel and their rescue from slavery and how the Lord had passed over and had forgiven them and rescued them and brought them out of Egypt and into a land that he promised them. They remembered it. And then that night, Jesus said, he breaks bread and he says, this bread is my body broken for you. He tells him, he says, take and eat. And then he takes a cup, he takes this cup of wine and he takes it and he says, here, take and drink. Drink of this this new covenant in my blood, which has been poured out for you, for many. And he tells us to do this in remembrance of him. So we go to the table over here to remember the cost of our salvation. And we don't take that lightly. Paul warns us in Corinthians to not, to not do this in an unworthy manner, not to do it with sin in our hearts, that we should reflect and repent of our sins and, and to uh, purify our hearts before God before even observing it. If we have some sin and conflict with someone else in our, a relationship or an acquaintance, that we should make that right. So don't feel pressure to observe this. I know because the way we have to do it in the building, they don't let us have food and drink in here, so we have to come up to the table and it makes it a little more like everyone's watching. And We're going to turn the lights down here in just a second. And listen, don't feel any pressure, like especially if you're a guest or, or something's going on in your life. Like, but I don't want it also to be like, oh, who's sitting in their seat? Like, well, maybe they got something going on. No, there's no pressure to observe this today. 
It is a command, it's an ordinance of the church that we're to remember and reflect and to take of the bread and and drink of the cup, to do this in a a manner that is worthy of of Christ and to do it with a heart that reflects on him. So what we're going to do is just simply bow our heads. I'm going to pray here in just a second to kind of transition our time and to pray. Um, And then all I'll do is invite you when you're ready, if you would like to come up, myself and Austin will be up here to help help serve you as well. And then we're going to sing... Uh, an old hymn has a little bit of uh, a refresher to it, but it's turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's been my prayer all morning, is that we would turn our eyes to Jesus, that we would see this Lamb of God who is in my place, his blood poured out, my sin erased. Hallelujah, the Lamb of God. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. I thank you so much for Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Redeemer. Father, forgive us of our apathy. Forgive us for just wanting the things that you can offer and not you. Um, God, help us. God, I, I, think, I think we all could pray this prayer right now. Is I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe some, some are like Thomas and they're, and they're questioning, like, is, is Jesus really, is he really alive? Is he really Uh, Is all this really real? I'm not sure. I need to see it. I need to touch his hands. I thank you for your compassion that you invited him to touch your side and to touch the nail-scarred, pierced hands. And you are willing and ready to rescue us because you've already paid the price. You've already done that through Calvary and in your death on the cross and your resurrection to new life. That we gives us great hope. So, Father, I pray that this morning, as we go to the t- this table together, as a church family, as we go and, and, and remind ourselves of the cost of our salvation, that your body was broken for us, that your, your blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So, God, help us to come with repentant hearts. So, God, purify our hearts. Forgive us of our pride, our self-reliance, our covetousness, our lust, our cravings for the things of this world, our our desire to please ourselves rather than please you. Help us to follow you. Help us to be willing to give up everything to follow you. God, we thank you so much for these opportunities to come to the table together. We pray that you would bless this time and help us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.